One of the uh, things that has happened in one of the phenomenons that uh, is kind of a bummer uh, is with the advent of so much electronic things and the advent of online sales, bookstores are becoming less and less. And it's interesting because I am totally a convert to reading on my iPad. I know, I know, but I just am totally, it's so convenient. I can just go anywhere and I have it and it's great. But I also love browsing through bookstores and that kind of thing. I don't buy any anymore because I want them on my iPad. But uh, I, I love that. And in really way back, uh, there was even a, a smaller genre called a Christian bookstore. And there's, there's still a few big ones around, but it used to be just a neighborhood Christian bookstore. And there were small bookstores everywhere. And, and, and these were fun. And you could, you could kind of see what was the, the books of the day because you could see in the window or, you know, there was a certain area. If you could figure that out somehow today, if you were to figure out the, the number one sellers or whatever, they are uh, often, they have in the title these days, in a, from a Christian perspective, they often have in the title the phrase gospel-centered. You'll, you'll see this now all over the place. Gospel-centered kids ministry, teaching, gospel-centered mom, that's, co- that's really cool, uh, gospel-centered discipleship, life at work, gospel-centered hermeneutics, or how do we understand the Bible, you know, so it's all gospel-centered, this and that thing. And, uh, and uh, one of the bloggers, and I don't spend a lot of time on blogs, I gave them up for my health. <laughs> really, honestly, I was getting, reading way too many blogs and getting upset about things, which is the, uh, so, but one of the guys that I, I, I read every now and then is a guy by the name of Tim Chalice. He wrote this five years ago, okay, five plus years ago. And so it's even increased, I would say, since then. He says, gospel-centeredness is all the rage today. We are told to live gospel-centered lives, to pray toward a gospel-centered faith, to have gospel-centered humility, to have a gospel-centered, to be gospel-centered parents, to form gospel-centered churches, to have gospel-centered marriages, to to say goodbye at gospel-centered funerals. The gospel, we are told, must be central to all we are and all we do. This is good. God really does mean for the gospel to be central to the lives of his people and to be right at the center of the church. There are really only two options for local churches. They can either be gospel-centered or just gonna pick kind of flavor of the day whatever issue you wanna talk about instead of saying the gospel impacts everything, right? And he just says, and I just say amen to that. The, the problem, and he will go on, he'll have he'll list, oh, I have some concerns about this. You know, it seems kind of flavor of the day kind of a thing. It just seems like something that you're, you're pushing out there. And, and the trick then becomes, just like any flavor of the day, whenever you start throwing around terms, uh, it starts to, to quote the great theological movie, The Princess Bride, right? You keep using that word, and you're not thinking it means what you think it means, right? So what happens then is you get, this is from his list in 2013. Those are the books, current books, and that's five years ago. So you could add to those, that list, of books, it's not meant for you to read them all there, <laughs> but uh, just tiny print, sorry, but it, there's just tons of this, and it causes, because this phrase starts to get overused, it causes that there's not clarity. A, fr- a pastor friend of mine who's, who's older than I am uh, says to me, he says, all you younger guys, I love at 54, a guy's calling me a younger guy, but he says, all you younger guys throw out this word gospel-centered. You just kind of throw it out there, and I push it, especially the guys in their 20s and 30s, and I say, what do you mean by that? And they cannot explain it, he said. It's just this long, convoluted, doesn't make any sense. And I hear that. I understand what he's talking about there. 
But I looked at my friend and I said this. I said, I, I can do it in four words. For me, in my journey, uh, I became a follower of Jesus Christ the spring of my freshman year of college. Maybe some of you here are just entering into that season of life. Uh, it's, a, it's a change in your life. It's when uh, you know a lot of things are going on, or maybe you're just going through some of that. And uh, I started checking out Christian things. And be honest, uh, you all were a little different to me. I hadn't hung out with you types. I didn't know what they what Christians or followers of Jesus really even looked like. And so you're <laughs> you're you're just a bit strange to me. I, I just you know, the way you thought, the way you lived. It was just like wow, that's really different, and so I, I would be weird now to who I am now, so I get that, and, and maybe there are just some of you are just kind of doing that. You're checking out Christianity. You're kicking the tires of Christianity, as we like to, like to say. When I became a follower of Christ uh, later that spring, uh, some, I, some things really changed for me, and it was a few years later, about three and a half, actually, uh, I was now in my my fifth year of college, I did a victory lap. You know, it was so good. You had to do one more lap around campus for a year. <laughs> but anyway, uh, during that last year, uh, I heard a message by a pastor of a local church, or Church of the Open Door, and I heard a pastor uh, give a message. And it's, there's some things that kind of clicked for me. Uh, and, and the message was about if the gospel's true, it's not just for people who are outside the faith so that they can enter into the faith. It's actually for Christians too so that they can just allow themselves to rest in the finished work of what Jesus did. And the phrase, I don't remember if he used the phrase or if my roommate and I, who are both at this particular message, we just started using with one another was a four-word phrase, and the phrase was this, I'm okay in Jesus. I'm okay in Jesus. And I'm gonna, uh, I and Cor and Brian at Lower Town are, are going to kind of argue that that is what gospel centrality is in four words. I'm okay in Jesus. And so we're doing a four-week series. <laughs> Cal, I was playing golf yesterday with Calvin. <laughs> you hear this service, Cal? No? Nope. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> I was playing golf yesterday. He goes, oh, four-week series and I'm okay in Jesus. What's the first week? And I said, uh, it's I'm and he goes, no, really, what's the title? No, it's I'm, that's the title, uh, I'm, I'm. All four weeks, we're gonna preach all of I'm okay in Jesus, okay? But each week, we're gonna have an, an emphasis on one particular word. And this time, this week, we're gonna talk about the issue of I'm. If you uh, ever took any philosophy growing up, or just even in high school, just the most basic philosophy, even at a young age, your mind starts to ponder some of these questions. It can happen in a variety of forms, but uh, philosophers centuries and centuries uh, past and current would say it kind of boils down to three big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? Right? Those are kind of the big philosophical questions. Of course, there's a bunch more, but, but this is something that just happens just because of who we are and the condition we find ourselves in. So as you think through these questions about who am I, you list some of these questions. What does it actually mean to be human? What is the makeup that I have? What, how am I different or am I different from animals or, or just even objects, you know, like a, like a tree or a, I guess that would be a, a 
like a rock or whatever. How am I different? And then the, the big question is, especially if you're paying attention to the news or whatever, is are, is humanity basically good or is it basically evil? What is it, right? Where am I going or where did I come from? Uh, is there any purpose behind this? That's really where the question comes from. Is there any meaning to my life and why was I put here on planet Earth? And then lastly, where am I going? Is there a plan for the future of us? Is there a design for, for my life and how can I find out what this plan is? And so you have, you have uh, this, these questions that are just hanging there and people answer them differently. Now what I'm gonna get into is what views on humanity or what you, one, one aspect of a social science field called <coughs> anthropology, all right? So anthropology can have a lot of different, different, different ways of looking at it. A lot of people say there's like five categories. I'm just gonna hit in on one, and I'm even gonna hit on that just a little bit, like two or three sentences. So just, if you're an anthropology major, my apologies. That's not my intention. Uh, I, I, I'm just trying to get at a little bit of the differences here. So what are some of those ways? And I'm, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, use here a guy by the name of Dr. Charlie, goes by Charlie, self. He's an associate professor at Assembly of God Seminary. And he uses these different categories. Uh, to, he talks about four different categories. I'm gonna first go to three, and then we'll go to what the biblical, what a biblical anthropology is, okay? So the first one would just be naturalism. Naturalism, or what some would say like it's just a science, just science only. In other words, what is it, from a scientific standpoint, you cannot prove anything spiritual. You cannot show me. All you can see is what you can see, what you can touch, what you can reproduce in a lab. And so if you're looking at this from a, a naturalist or a scientist or materialist, and, and by that I don't mean you're, you're a materialist and you're greedy. I just mean stuff. You just, from that standpoint, then who are we as humans? And, and from that standpoint, that standpoint alone is, we're just a bunch of chemicals. That's just who we are. And that if, if from, and where do we come from? Well, if it's just purely from a, a material standpoint, and science would say that there's a closed universe, right? You can't, to prove an open universe, meaning that there's some type of designer, that, that just violates all the rules of science. So what can we observe? What can we see? Therefore, it had to have happened over billions of years. And therefore, and... Not only that, but there wasn't like a plan here. It just was time plus chance to get us here. It's really important, you know, so if you talk about evolution, what kind of evolution are you talking about here? So naturalism pushes to time plus chance. That's it. It's not, it's billions and billions of years and you got really, really lucky. There is no designer. There, there are people who hold to the biblical understanding of of, of Christianity and would say that, yeah, God did it through evolution, but he just threw down on the earth, one of my favorite phrases, front-loaded primordial slime. There it was. But then it was front-loaded, so it did its thing. Whatever, I don't know. I wasn't there. Neither were you. And so, but if you buy this completely, naturalism, materialism, you're just a bunch of chemicals, you have to. It's, it's a philosophical certainty that your life has no purpose. I'm not, I'm not trying to, this, from, from their own mouth, it's a fallacy. You can, you can live your life just kind of how you want it, but the, the, you have meaning and purpose. 
That, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. And there, there, there is no spiritual. Like that's, okay, so then you move into what another whole different way of doing, very different, very different way would be Eastern religious, very much believes in a spiritual, but perhaps quite a bit different than you'd get from necessarily the Bible. So the spiritual here would be that like all is God. God is all and, and all is God, right? So nature is God. Nature is completely uh, in, in everything. And our job is to become one with nature, right? Now, obviously, there's some truth to that. Like you go to the Boundary Waters or you, you just hang out here and see a beautiful sunset. There's a sense of like, wow, I feel... I feel, and we would say, as, as people who would hold the scriptures, we would say that's an echo of a creator God showing in me glory. I'm seeing beauty here and wonder and awe. But they're, they're, the response here from, and again, I'm lumping all kinds of Eastern thinking. This would also follow what used to be called the New Age movement or, or even some that would call themselves Wiccan. A lot of people think Wiccan means witches. It really means more natural or, or um, they would follow like, a pagan religion, uh, which, which basically would say that we worship the earth, so to speak, okay? So again, I'm lumping that all together, but that's basically what goes to her. That. And the last way would be like an Islamic view or other religions or other worldviews that would put hierarchy to humanity, okay? And it's based on whatever you want the, the, the system to be, okay? So there's a lot of different ways of expression of this. Islam is probably one of the easiest ones because they would clearly have, at the top, they would have uh, Islamic males, all right? Below that, actually quite a couple drops down would be females, but people who follow the Muslim religion. Below that, and significantly below that, would be all uh, misguided people who follow other religions, Jews, Christians, whatever, okay? So they would be next step. And then below that, quite a ways below, would be uh, the atheist, the pagan, the, those who would not follow any type of, of way of expression towards God, okay? So, but there's definite categories there. It's very, very, very hierarchical. And the further up the chain you go, some of it you can't even choose because it's your gender, you, there are different values to humanity. So what do we want to talk about here? Remainder of our time, what I want to talk about is uh, toward, so it means we're not, I'm not laying the entirety thing out here. Uh, we're going to spend some good time in the Bible here. So if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to page one, uh, index, go to page two, Genesis one, that's where we're going. And we're, we're going to look at a biblical anthropology. In other words, what does it mean to be human? from a Bible standpoint, and it is different than the rest of the way different uh, anthropologies around the world look at this. So what is uniquely a Christian way of understanding this? So let's look at this. First verse, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, when? I don't know, just back in the beginning. Doesn't say how long. Genesis 1 is not necessarily a textbook on exactly how God did it, but more the fact that he did it, all right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what follows then for the next 24 verses until verse 26, and I'm just gonna skip down there for, uh, uh, just for time's sake here, is God creating, and he creates in days, signifying order. 
I'm not going to argue whether that was a 24-hour day or a 24-million-year period or whatever it was. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Then neither were you, okay? So, so we're, 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 what's important here is God is creator. He's the one who speaks and things happen. But the length of time is this, not important, but they speak and things happen. In fact, things that even weren't, didn't exist, exist now. God is the one who looks at that. And every time he does this, at the end of that epoch or that day, God then says he looked at it and saw that it was what? Good. So God defines what's good, and God defines, therefore, what is not good. And then if you push that down, because we'll see in Genesis chapter 2, he looks at Adam when there's no creation of Eve yet, and he says it's not good that Adam's alone but it's not sinful, it's just not completed, but he also would be the definer of down that road towards what is evil, okay? God is the one who does that. Now we get to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then God said, so it's the final day, sixth day of creation, and the, the pinnacle, the highlight of all creation is humanity. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds on the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. A couple observations here, very important. God says, let us, plural, interesting, so many people look at that and say there's, a, there's an indicator that God from the very beginning of the Bible is explaining his triuneness, that God is contained in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right there. Let us make mankind in our image. So at the time when, most likely, Moses wrote this, there would have been kings of other cultures who would claim that they were God. The, Egypt, the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, would claim that he was God. And you made statues in his image because you worshiped them because then the worship would get back to him as this God, right? God says, we just went through the book of Exodus, God says, don't make images in don't make images uh, that are meant to reflect me or any other, 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 there are no other gods, but if there were, then don't make any images, okay? Because I've already done it. See, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So there's some way that we're very much like God. We're relational, we're emotional, we're volitional, we are... Uh, uh, intellectual, we have this way that we're like God and we're also made in his image. Who is God? God is king. And because he's made us in his image, look what he says, so that, that means the reason or the purpose that why you've done this, they may rule. Oh, so God's a king with a capital K and he makes people, humanity, a king with a small k, so that they're stewards, they're stewards of the earth. They may rule over the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, livestock, all the wild animals, and all the, over all the creatures that move along the ground, okay? That's what's given to humanity. So, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, and right off the bat, in Genesis 1.27, Moses wants to make it clear, thousands of years ago, that maleness and femaleness both are equal. That there's something about maleness and females created in the image of God. Yeah, they're different. They're different, 
but they're equal value. Men and women are different, of course, but there's not a hierarchy here. It is men and women, uh, male and female, he created them. Okay? That's what we learn from the very beginning. This is just chapter one stuff. Radically, radically throwing in to the mix of ideas what, who are we as, as human beings. If you go further in the Bible, it talks about God saying that we're created for his glory. He says in Isaiah chapter 47, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by name, called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God's saying the pe people whom I formed and made, they're actually created for my glory. Now what does that even mean? The glory of God is basically like, I, I did it again. I did it for service too. I looked up at that spotlight and just totally burned my retinas here. But if you look at a light bulb, okay, so there's a light bulb and then there's the, the, the hot stuff. Sorry about getting technical there, but there's the stuff, right? And then that, and then that gets the thing and then it just radiates light, Okay? Carlson Majors is like, whoa, I don't like when he goes scientific, man. I don't, ooh. The engineers are writing a schematic up for me right now. I'm gonna, phone's gonna beep here in a second. Okay, so, so but that, that, that who God is is like the filament. I don't even know if lights have filaments, the rest of them, but, you know, and, and, and the radiance of it, the light, is his glory. It's just, it's the essence of showing himself off. It's the essence, essence of his awesomeness, okay? It's, it's when the, and I'm, I'm not just doing this to, to poke fun here, but it's when they score the touchdown, then that will happen, right? When they score the touchdown and you just immediately go to your feet and that's, that's just glory, right? That's what it is. He says, we're created for that. Not only are we created for that, oh, sorry, got ahead of myself, uh, the fact that we are created for God's glory guarantees that our lives are significant. When we first realize that God did not need to create us, so God doesn't create the world and people because for eternity past he was bored or he was lonely. He creates because he wants to expand his awesomeness. We could conclude that our uh, lives are of no importance at all, but Scripture tells us that we are created to glorify God, indicating that we are important to God himself. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance to our lives. If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? To... In the, in, the, in the 1600s, right after the, the, uh, the Protestant Reformation takes place and, and Luther comes along and others start to follow him and, and then all of a sudden this thing, it really starts branching out like a broccoli, okay? So it's, it's all over the place. You have all these different new denominations and churches and people splitting over that. There was a group in Scotland that tried to bring them, bring them all together, right? And they tried to get them all to do that and they form a catechism to, to do that, and the catechism is called the Westminster Confession. And the number one question is, question, oops, 
I always miss this up. I, I move these, yeah. <laughs> I'll get back here. Uh, what is the question number one? What is the chief end? What is the purpose? The end there means purpose. What's the chief purpose of mankind? And the answer they give is very short, very memorable. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I remember as a public school teacher, I, you know, you're not supposed to initiate conversations about God or whatever, but I, I was teaching, you know, I don't know what I was teaching, eighth grade math, hormone control, that's what I was teaching. I, I, <laughs> so all I remember, I have scars to prove it. But I was done with my lesson, I said, any questions? And I still remember Jessica, Jessica raised her hand and she said, yeah, what's the purpose of life? And I just shot bad, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And she went, oh, that was cool. <laughs> that was quick. It's like, well, that's it's in the book, you know. So, okay, so, or the Westminster Confession. So, we're created for his glory and to enjoy him forever. Second part. Whoops, whoops, back up, back up, back up, back up. There we go. Um, the psalmist here leans into this. He says, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So I'm, I'm created by God, I'm made in his image, I'm made in his likeness, I have all this stuff which distinguishes me from animals, from uh, buildings, from other parts of nature. I'm different, I'm the pinnacle of creation. I was made that way, and then, not only that, but God says he does it for his glory. There's a way that he wants to reflect into the world, he wants in my life whatever to reflect this glory, and not only that, but he wants me to run on pure joy, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's, that's what we're created for. But we don't live there, right? We don't live there. Why? Because it only lasts for two, two chapters in the Bible. By third chapter, it gets mucked up. Got to go through all of Genesis chapter 3 in order to understand this. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You know, if you go back to Genesis 2, God tells Adam, uh, before Eve, even Eve, Eve is created, uh, about don't eat from this tree the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. Any other tree you're free to eat from, but don't eat from that one. Somewhere in there, we're not privy to the conversation. Somewhere Adam tells Eve. Eve is gonna repeat it here in just a minute. Maybe that's the way Adam said it. Maybe she adds to it. We don't know. But he certainly did not say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. He didn't say that. So he's trying to confuse her. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. Again, Eve adds that. Again, we don't know if Adam added that, or maybe she added that, thinking that's, I need to add, I don't know, we don't know. You will not surely die, liar. That's a lie. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That is totally true. And you'll be like God. That's somewhat true. Knowing good and evil. Yeah, I will know that. That's something I want to know, right? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. What's going on here now? 
She's, she can't just be that she's hungry because there's lots of, lots of trees. But now I want that tree. Why? Well, it looks good. And it's pleasing to the eye. And if I have that, I will now know good and evil. Right? Who defines good and evil? God. So I'm a, God's a king with a capital K. I'm a king with a small K. I want to be a king with the capital K. That's really what's going on here. I want to be like God. So she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Where was he? He was right there. Don't just, don't just blow this over on Eve and say, man, I wish Eve hadn't blown it. Adam is over here doing nothing. He's watching BYU beat Wisconsin, which, by the way, was worthy of. Anyway, um, or whatever, whatever game, you know, the Vikings or the, the, the Gophers win or the, the Tommies are, I don't know, people shout out a bunch for service. But the, he, he was there, but he was just checked out. Doesn't say a word. He also eats it, following the same rationale. And from that moment on, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They were naked before. They didn't feel any shame. The end of chapter 2 says that. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. By the way, that is the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Because all they did is hear this sound. They heard a sound and they go, oh yeah, that's the sound of God when he walks with us. When? At the end of a day. It, it's, it's happy hour with God. It's, it's nest tea time, end of the day, right? You've done your work for the day and you're just chilling with a good friend and you're taking a walk. In this case, it was a stroll through the garden. And that is now lost. That is the saddest verse in the Bible. And not only that, instead of coming to them going, oh, we have so much to tell you about what happened today, God, this time they don't, they hide from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? God knows where they are, okay? Just wants them to fess up, fess up. And he says, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Huh, that's a new concept. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? That is a yes or no question, right? Yes or no question. Have you eaten from the tree? And Adam's answer is the woman, right? His answer is the woman. And the third word in his sentence gets him in more trouble. You put here with me. Adam ultimately blames the Eve but penultimately, even more so, blames God. The woman you gave me was defective, God. Now, that's not what God asked. Did you eat from the tree? Wasn't asking for excuses here. Was just asking for you to fess up, and he never does it. My mentor has pounded this into me in 22 years of meeting with him. If you can't handle the shame, you always move to blame. Always. It's just, it's just unreal. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? At least Eve answers the question correctly. The serpent deceived me and ate. But she also blame shifts, right? The serpent, right? 
So then what happens next is what is called the curse. What happens next in Genesis chapter three is one of two things or perhaps a mixture. So it's either God telling Adam and Eve, here's the deal, you allowed sin in, I'm just gonna tell you now what life is gonna be like. Or it could be that it, Adam and Eve, you sinned, here's my pronouncement of judgment on you. Or it could be a little bit of both, or kind of both in there, and that's the way I kind of lean. Like portions are just, you've done this, and other ones, I'm gonna do some things. So because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15 is amazing passage. In it, it indicates that there is now on the world, in the world's surface, going to be warfare between the spiritual forces of evil and people, the offspring of the woman. That is just going to be the new normal. It's not the way, enmity, right? There's just going to be this, this strife thing happening. That's just the way it's going to be. And it goes on to talk about this offspring so it, it, it not only leans into the way things are gonna be just immediately, but there's something gonna happen one day where he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You're gonna hurt him, but he's gonna kill you. And that is what theologians would call the proto-first evangelium, which is, means pr first proclamation of the gospel. This passage points all the way to Jesus Christ. A lot of people even think that Genesis 3.15, the, the link of it, is kind of the theme of the Bible. The, the, the uh, offspring of the woman versus the offspring of the serpent and how that battle happens throughout the rest of Scripture. Then he looks at Eve and says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. The pain, with pain you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, okay? Now relationships, the, the bringing of people into the world as well as your relationship with your husband is going to change. I'll come back to that in just a little bit when we see that word desire in chapter four. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. We live on a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. So work was not the curse, but this hard work, this difficult work is. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taking. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is entered in for the first time. Death is not a normal part of life. Death is not the way we were created to be. When you go to a funeral, there's a reason it doesn't feel good. Yes, we're gonna celebrate that person's life. I vote yes every day long. But there's something wrong with that person not being here. It's not right. Now, if you ever do a funeral, if you ever, if the person who stands up, just, if I'm there, please do not say, well, death is a natural part of life because I will punch you in the throat. Now, I won't do it right then. I'll do it later because that would be super awkward, Right? But death is not a natural part of life. It's wrong. It's part of the curse. Goes on then, it says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man now has become like one of us. So there's something that happened, but he doesn't become a king with a capital K. Something happens is he knows now evil. Now God 
God does not know evil in the sense that he's committed evil, but he knows enough about it so that he can say he has knowledge of it. When it comes to, to Adam and Eve, they know it because they've experienced it and they've done it, and they are now sinners. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I do not want him staying in this condition. This is not good. He's not gonna do that. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Why? Because he wanted back in. You want to go back in. And it's this, no, you're not going back in. My argument is from that day forward, we wake up every morning and what I really want is to go back into the garden the way it was where I can walk with God in the cool of the day where my, my relationships are perfect, and it's not that way. Early 90s, uh, there was a movie made. The movie was called The uh, Grand Canyon. It starred uh, Danny Glover and Kevin Kline and uh, Steve Martin. And uh, Steve Martin's character's car breaks down, and this hoodlum has got a gun, and he's trying to, trying to take, uh, to, to rob Steve Martin. And... Um, this guy shows up, Danny Glover, in his tow truck. And now the guy's got a gun, and all Danny wants to do is, because the car broke down, he's just trying to help the guy. And Danny Glover says something to the effect of, hey, listen, man, I don't have any trouble. I don't know you. I don't know your name. Let me just take this guy's car and just get out of here. And the guy says, you know, I'll let you do that, but I got one question for you. Are, are you doing this because I got, you respect me or because I got the gun? And Danny Glover finally, he, he, he says, after he, after he says what I'm going to quote here, he says, you don't have the gun, we're not having this conversation. Okay? But he quotes something in the middle. <laughs> and he just had had enough. And he says this, man, the world ain't supposed to be work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is. I, I, I think the greatest argument for Christianity is everything's supposed to be different than what it is. I don't live in this world. C.S. Lewis said it well. If I have inklings that things are not right here, it's the number one indicator, paraphrased, by the way, number one indicator that I was created for another world that I'm not at. We're not created for a world of temptation where I just... You know, I'm just tempted all the time. How does this play itself out? You go to Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four uh, says, I'm just gonna paraphrase this for, for a little bit that, uh, so we get down to, to the last sentence there, uh, that Adam and Eve, they, they have a son. His name's Cain. They have another son named Abel. And uh, they both bring offerings to God. And for whatever reason, God it finds Abel's more favorable, and Cain is then going to kill Abel. But before he does it, it says then that uh, Cain is very angry. Let's look down here. It says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And then he says this, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. First time in the Bible, we'll see the word sin. Sin is crouching at your door. Get this, get this, like, loaded, like, what's that movie? Crouching, tiger, hidden, whatever. It's 
right? It's crouching, and it says it desires to have you. It wants to leap onto you. By the way, that's the word desire, where it says you will desire your husband, and he will rule over you. <laughs> that's, he says that's what this beautiful relationship, that's the way it's gonna work if, if you just keep acting like that. But you must rule over it. Big observations here. First off, they're still giving offerings to God. So God doesn't completely give up on them. Two, sin is a real factor now in everyone's life. It is really there. It is crouching. It is desirous to have you. It is part of our, it's, we're extremely susceptible to it. We, we ourselves are even bent that way, Scripture talks about, okay? But it says that we're responsible too. You must rule over it. Cain doesn't. He kills his brother. Goes on. So then you have to ask the question, um, we created the image of God. Is that lost? Is that no longer us? And it's not until you get after the flood in the story in the book of Genesis that you see this passage. And it's basically saying to take seriously humanity. And the way they do it is they talk about punishment based on people who shed innocent blood. Verse six, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Boom, still there. So the image of God is still there, but it is marred. It is fallen. It is different. But we're still made in the image of God, which is no small thing. If you walk out of here with that only, that every human is made in the image of God, it'll change the way you relate to people. Listen to this. Yet we must remember that even fallen, sinful mankind has the status of being in God's image. Every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability or how you vote or today, which football team you root for or whatever, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. This has profound implications for our conduct toward others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. So it's a, we're created, this image, but the image is now marred. We're created for God's glory and we're created for incredible joy, but we live in a world where that is obscured and it is brought down. Are people basically good or basically evil? And the answer to that question is, well, kind of, yeah. They're, they're still created in the image of God. They're still created for God's glory and to, to experience joyful things. And you can have some of the greatest moments. And then at the same time, at, at the same exact moment, you can be suffering and you can be going through loss or make terrible decisions that impact other people. And, and it's like, yeah, how do we now undo the fall? How do we Quite often, how do we get back to the garden? How do the glory and joy that we're created for, how does that get restored? And here, I, I just want to go, this is where the gospel comes in. I'm okay in Jesus. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's how it happens. Faith in Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember uh, you're created for the glory of God, you fall short of it. You're not there. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was the perfect human. 
He lived a perfect life. He died because he was fully human and fully God, and he could take the sin that you and I couldn't pay for. He dies our penalty. When he goes to the cross, he pays for it. It's redemption. It's a road of redemption for us. We're able to get back. And so much so that even when, in a couple chapters later in the same book of the Bible, Apostle Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we've been made okay with God. Justified means that it's just as if I never sinned, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's only by believing. It's not by how good you are. If you try to rack yourself up so you're better than other people, how many times you go to church, how much money you give to the poor, to the church, or how well you do your job, or how good of a parent you are, all good stuff, do it. Has nothing to do with how you get right with God. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, faith. And we rejoice, we look forward to the hope of the glory of God. We fall short, now we're back in line with it. It has been restored. That's true about the glory. What about the joy? Jesus said when he came, he came to restore that. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Christ came that they may have life, and that life, well, he's not a killjoy. Jesus wants to give you the greatest life ever, Right? I've come that they may have that kind of joy back in their hearts. And so, yes, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've bent your knee to him, if you've undone what Adam and Eve did and said, I want to be king, no, Lord, you're king. I'm putting you there, Jesus Christ. You're my king. You're my savior. If that's you, then what has happened to you is you're different. One day, one day, you'll be made fully human. As was uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. In other words, Adam, the earthly man, the first one, Adam, so are those who are fallen. And as is the heavenly man, Jesus, so are those who are followers of Jesus. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, we have a sinful nature right now. We have a, we, we're, we're fallen. So we shall one day fully be restored the image of this heavenly man, Jesus. One day we will become fully human. One day we go back to the garden. So, to close, how do we look at ourselves and our others? Second Corinthians 5. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If you're, if you're biblical anthropology, if you're Christian, uh, your Christ-centered, gospel-centered anthropology now tells you this is who people are. They deserve dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God, but we're also fallen, and we need to fix to that. We, know, we don't, we don't uh, uh, regard people from a worldly point of view anymore. We're gonna do it from a Christian point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. That's the Apostle Paul saying, before I used to look at Jesus even that way. I'm not now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new has come. You're in Jesus Christ. I am okay in Jesus. If you're in Jesus, you are now a new creation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. And this is Paul's message everywhere he goes. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteous of God. I'm okay in Jesus. Two questions as we close and as we sing this last song, I'd love for you to ponder these. Number one, are you okay in Jesus? Some of you might be the first time you're just thinking, you know what? That, that's the essence of Christianity. That's what it is. I need to think about that. And that's where I was at. Took me a while. Didn't do it in a day. Took me a while. Finally, I said yes to Jesus Christ. It's gonna bow my knee to him. Some of you, maybe you've done that years ago. And there's a bunch of other stuff you're now relying on to make you okay. And that's what I'd like to ask you to consider. Are you okay in Jesus? And secondly, if that is true, how does that play out in your week ahead? How does it play out that people, no matter every, you, you, you've never met a mere mortal, you've met people who are made in the image of God every single day, every single person you encounter, how's that gonna play out in your week ahead? Let's pray together. Lord, as we close with this song, I pray you just speak into our hearts. You'd speak into our hearts about who we are, Speak about how much you unbelievably love and care for us in the midst of that. And God, I pray for every single person here that you love to see that clearly, God. That we would be image bearers of you and would want to live for your glory. And you do that by your work. I pray especially for folks in this room, maybe for the first time in their lives. They're trying to decide whether or not they want to give you their life. And I pray you give them the courage and the faith to do it, God. I pray, Lord, for those of us who maybe years and years and years ago, but we've wandered into things other than you that make us okay. I'm okay in you. I'm okay in you, and that's it. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name.